Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kia g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 127, Q&A 2023, Part Rua. This podcast is recorded in Te Whanganui Atara on the rohe of Muiupoko, Taranaki Whanui, Te Atiawa and Ngāti Toa Rangatira. We are generously supported by our amazing patrons, if you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history A question from Aaron. Thank you for this one, Aaron. An interesting topic would be pre-European burial sites and or cemeteries slash urupa. This question relates to episode 109, Beyond the Veil. Most of the episode is spent discussing, um, you know, the soul's journey, the wairua's journey after death. Um, But at the start of the episode, I talk a little bit about tangihanga and kind of what happens to the body and that kind of stuff. Now, the short answer to your question, Aaron, is that urupa cemeteries, as we know them today, is not Māori in origin. It's European. So... The short answer to your question is there isn't really discussion to be had about cemeteries as you see them today um, because that's very much a European invention. However, I did want to go a little bit more into how bodies were uh, buried and that sort of stuff than I did in that episode. Again, as as with other questions, um, there is a bit of information in episode 109 about how bodies are um, buried and laid to rest. But here's a little bit more information uh, that I found to uh, expand on that. So again, what we find is that pre-European Māori didn't bury their dead in cemeteries like we do now, at least not until after Europeans arrived. After someone had died, their body would be placed somewhere to decay before the bones were cleaned. This could be in a sort of cot, 
on a platform or walker in some reeds or in a tree or the body could be buried in a shallow grave there is a whole raft of different places that a body could uh, be put uh, during this stage the main sort of uh, idea though was that it would be put somewhere that was at least a little bit hidden so that no one could find it sometimes at a wahi tapu a sacred place one source does claim that maori may have put their dead on waka and sent them out to sea tying them up so they sat up and could face the direction the waka was moving this particular tidbit came second hand from the experience of a steamboat captain where he was you know on his steamboat chugging along down a river and he saw a, a waka sitting out in the reeds and then you know when he went to go hail it he realized the guy was all um, tied up and, and was actually dead and i did find one other source that sort of made this claim that iwi near the coast would uh yeah tie up their dead and, and then push them out to sea kind of thing so it's possible that it was a real thing that happened but as far as i can tell not many people talked about it which of course doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a real thing but yeah it's just not something that uh, i could find very much information on um, and of course was if it was a, a thing that happened it was only restricted to coastal iwi anyone who was inland uh, didn't really do that because of course they don't have access to the sea uh, bones could also be placed in carved caskets that looked like the person that they contained including carving their moko onto the face of the casket um, that was after uh, the bones were cleaned and then they could be placed in these in these caskets important people like rangatira were often buried in hollow trees or caves with their family members if it was a tree, the tree may be carved with intricate designs. After the bones had been buried in these places, they might actually be retrieved multiple times if the person had family that was far away and they had to travel to their burial place to pay their respects. So they, the bones would be taken out and the family allowed to see them um, so that they would be able to pay their respects uh, and grieve. Bodies could also be placed in between large rocks or really any other cracks, crevices or gaps in the world that may reasonably fit a person and keep them hidden. If living near the coast, bones may be buried in sand dunes, sometimes at the bottom of the dune so that they could just push the sand down from the top and onto the body, requiring less work than digging a hole and then filling it back in again. Though, of course, sand is a bit more volatile than dirt in the sense that, you know, the wind can push it away and then reveal the bones again. So if someone was buried in this manner, it may indicate that they were of lesser standing. It's possible that Māori didn't want to bury their rangatira and other important nobles in places where they, they, you know, their bones could be revealed, where they might be found and then someone could use them for makatū or something like that. So that's not definitive, that was just a, a thing that, um, you know, that, that some scholars theorise, basically, or hypothesise, basically. They may also be weighed down with rocks and buried at sea. Bodies could also be buried in swamps or lakes or springs. So there's lots of different ways that, um, and lots of different places uh, that bodies could be buried. It, uh, like many things that we've talked about in previous episodes, it largely depended on where um, 
that person had been living what kind of resources they had access to and and that kind of thing if you had lots of caves you'd probably use those if you were near the coast you were probably going to do something in the sand or in the sea if you were uh, near some lakes you were probably going to do something with the lake or the river or you know if you had a swamp you're probably going to bury them in the swamp it all just depends on what was in the area the other thing that they could do was have waka be set vertically in the ground to mark a memorial for someone important and they would also be decorated with carvings and feathers it is likely that the bones weren't actually buried in those places but one of these recorded in queen charlotte sound which is in the marlborough sounds at the top of the south island apparently did have bones inside and as such had a fence around it that was painted red there were some special buildings erected in par that were meant to hold the bones of the dead usually in carved boxes however it's unclear if this was their permanent resting place or if it was just temporary before they were moved to a cave or a tree or wherever they were going to ultimately end up it's also possible that these buildings were a later development after european arrival Often, when bones were placed in caves, they would be tied together with the skull resting on top, and placed in the cave with grave goods like mere, kākahu, and small important items like jewellery. So that's a bit more information about Urupa and how uh, Māori, pre-European Māori, were buried. Yeah, so unfortunately I couldn't exactly answer your question, Aaron, in talking about you know cemeteries but there are you know burial sites that were utilized in different ways it was just that they were mostly like caves and hollow trees or swamps or that kind of uh, that kind of stuff they don't seem to have buried them in the ground all that often and i did read some different sources that would say it would if you buried someone in the ground it would you know taint the ground in some way others don't seem to have believed that was the case so it seems to have been there was a wide amount of variation in how pre-european maori laid their their dead to rest which is really interesting but yeah it meant that yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot of different things going on there and it seems also that at least from the early scholars like alston best and all those sorts of people it was not well understood um by them i suspect partially because uh you know when someone dies and you're having their funeral or tangihanga um it's a very you know it's very emotional especially if that person was like a rangatira if that person was important if they were well known well liked very important within their community you know you probably don't want some weird guy poking around writing things down taking pictures or whatever it's not you know that's not really appropriate you don't really want that guy walking around asking people so why are you doing this why do you believe in all this sort of stuff um so i kind of suspect that that's maybe what was going on was you know most pakeha were not afforded a level of access to these sorts of things that perhaps in other cases they were afforded a certain level of access due to the tapu around it due to the the emotion around it again the last thing you fucking need when you you know someone's died is some dude asking you weird questions because he's he's a nerd you know so yeah so it's perhaps understandable that um this is perhaps a not hugely uh well understood aspect at least from the early writers anyway additionally when you add on the fact that um you know maori culture has a big component of 
um, ancestor worship and ancestor veneration, I should say, that, that, you know, again, you probably don't want when you're laying someone to rest who is in theory going to be helping you from the other side, you probably don't want, again, some weird white nerd hanging around telling you or asking you questions. So yeah, that's just my speculation though. Moving on to the next question, which comes from Greg. And Greg actually has his own podcast called Popular History, which, as the name might imply, is all about popes and the history of Christianity and the Bible and all sorts of other things. So if that's something that you're interested in, I highly recommend uh, going to check it out. So Greg's question is... I think I remember you mentioning Navigation by Stars, but I couldn't find the episode for a re-listen to better phrase this question. So, I guess in short, when did you talk about that, for reference, and is there anything more that can be said? Because human engagement with the heavens in all senses of the term has always been fascinating to me. Attached is an example of something I googled up. Is this something that would have been historical, or is it more of a modern development? What constellations did slash do Māori identify? Thank you for the question, Greg. Um, He did attach a picture of a Māori star compass, um, which is basically what it sounds like. It's pretty much a compass rose with um, a bunch of names of different stars and constellations on it. I did find out where that actually comes from, so we are going to talk about that in a little bit, as well as more broadly how stars and the heavens were used uh, to navigate. And I've also found some more stuff on Maramataka and how the stars were used in horticulture and um, the calendar and that sort of thing, which I found pretty interesting, so I chucked that in here as well. Um, But to your question of what episodes I discussed this on um, and and talked about this sort of stuff, I think the two episodes that I probably primarily talked about, um, particularly navigation, was the Great Migration, um, which was one of the earlier episodes. I think it it might have been episode like five or six, really early which detailed how Māori got to Aotearoa. Um, And the other one was episode 15, which was all about Matariki. Um, That one was more about how Matariki was used in in Marmataka and the calendar and all that sort of stuff. Um, So that's what we're going to start with. We're going to start talking about Marmataka, and then a little bit later we'll also discuss navigation. So... Māori essentially had three different cycles that they followed, which dictated various parts of the year. The movement of the sun from north to south over the year. The movement of the stars, so that's Matariki, etc. And arguably the most important was the phases of the moon. These, along with observing other signs on Earth, like when certain plants were flowering or animals were migrating, would help Māori determine when they should plant, harvest, hunt, fish, go to war, when ceremonies should be undertaken, and all sorts of other things. All of this information is collectively known as Maramataka, the Māori lunar calendar. The Maramataka is different depending on which iwi you're talking about, which makes sense given someone living in Tamaki Makoto would have different plants and animals around them than someone living in Tafanganui Atara. We also see this with the stars that they can see. 
Some iwi use the appearance of Matariki to indicate the beginning of a new year, and others use Pawanga instead because it's a bit easier to see in the sky as opposed to Matariki. This also means that they view the length of the year differently, dividing it into either 10 or 12 months. The appearance of different stars slash constellations would indicate the change in month or the seasons as well. The name of each phase of the moon would give you a bit of an idea of what you could expect from the following day. For example, Natikahanunu Maramataka said that if you couldn't see the moon at all, then it was called Fido, and that was generally seen as a bad day. Whereas four days after the new moon was called Uenuku, the name of the war god depicted by a rainbow. And that day would be a good one to plant in the morning and to catch eels in the evening. Not all stars were seen year round, and so when certain stars or constellations appear, it indicates what time of year or season it is. Usually these stars appear first in the early morning just before the sun rises, which is called helical rising. The most famous one of these is of course Matariki, and the new year is often dictated by when Matariki becomes visible again during the period leading up to the new moon, which usually occurs somewhere around June and July. Matariki then remains visible for most of the year until about May when it disappears beyond the horizon, marking the end of the year. Most people in New Zealand will at least be vaguely familiar with this, because as of a couple of years ago, uh, Matariki is actually a national public holiday that we all, you know, get off, we get the day off work and that sort of stuff. So most people in New Zealand would kind of know what Matariki is about, at least a little bit. In other cases, stars that are visible in the night sky year-round need to be observed in certain positions in the heavens to show what time of year it is, and each of the months was named after a star, and its helical rising alongside the new moon denoted when that month started. To give you some examples of stars and the months that they related to, Takurua, which the Western world knows as Sirius, was related to July, and its rising in the sky would indicate when July started. Rehua, which is also known as Antares, would indicate when January started, and Potu Terangi, which is Altair, was used for March. Even Venus was used for October, being called Kopu. Again, this was different for each iwi, and the ones that I've quoted here came from Elston Best, who was speaking to Tutakanaho of Tuhoi. Well, technically I got it from a book by modern-day astronomer Rangi Matamua, who quoted Best, who quoted Tutakanaho. Anyway, because each iwi lived in a different place, it meant they observed slightly different things, such as different stars, due to what they could and could not see. And this, in turn, changed how they interpreted the year and when certain months or seasons started or ended. 
So there wasn't one universal calendar that all Māori used. Each iwi, and possibly different hapu, used different calendars based on the stars they could see at any given time of the year, based on a variety of different factors. Probably the most obvious one being, if you live next to a series of mountains, then you're probably not going to be able to see certain stars uh, in the direction that that mountain range is. So if you live on the eastern side of a mountain range, you're probably not going to be able to see some stars that rise in the west. So chances are you wouldn't use those stars to indicate certain months of the year. You'd probably use different stars. Or at the very least, you might use uh, those hidden stars at a different time of year because they rise later in the year or earlier in the year for you, depending on your context. Another example of this being that instead of using the new moon to start a month, it was the full moon. Again, it differed between iwi. It's also important to keep in mind that the Māori year, although very similar in how it was structured, can't exactly be equated to the Gregorian calendar we use today. I've just used that as an aid to help get your bearings. So what I mean by that is Takurua, Sirius, isn't exactly analogous to July. It might rise, say, a few days into July, for example, and the next set of stars might rise a few days after the end of July and into uh, August. So, you know, it's not exactly one for one. It's slightly off, if you will. The reason for this is that the fundamental difference between the two calendars is that the Gregorian is a solar calendar. It's based on the sun and how quickly the earth goes around it. And as such, has approximately 30 days in a month and 365 days in a year. Whereas Maramataka is a lunar calendar. It's based on the phases of the moon. And as such, it has a 29 and a half days in a month, or 354 days in a year. Again, though, this depended on the iwi. The number of phases per month could range from 28 to 32, each with their own name and different meaning. Of course, the problem becomes that because the Māori year was less than 365 days, it meant that there was a few more days that needed to be added. Otherwise, you'd just have this void of time in between that isn't named. So usually, they would add some extra days every year or a whole month every few years. The reason that's important is because if you didn't add those extra days, what you'd find is a gradual shift in when those months occur in the year and what's actually going on in the real world. So kind of to make that more clear, right now New Zealand is in summer. It's December as I record this. So if you didn't add those extra uh, days at the end of the year or at, you know add them at some point then what you'd find is that instead of December being in summer it would gradually end up being in you know autumn spring winter whenever it would occur you, your calendar would be saying it's December and then outside you'd be like wow it's really cold right now so it's clearly winter 
the same thing would happen with the uh, Gregorian calendar as well, with the solar calendar, if we didn't add those days into the leap years. It's just because the Gregorian calendar only needs a quarter of a day every year, it would do, it would be very gradual that this would happen. Um, because the lunar calendar has slightly less days, um, then you'd see that that process would be uh, a lot faster. Um, so both the calendars have the same uh problem if you will and they solve it in very similar ways or virtually exactly the same way the difference just being the sort of scale that they do it at just because they were looking at the stars and the moon a lot doesn't mean that the sun wasn't also important just like how Māori knew a lot about how the moon and stars behave, they also had an excellent grasp on what the sun did at various times of the year. Specifically, they noted that the sun rose in a more southerly position in summer, and in a more northerly position in winter. This was then described as the sun, Tamanui Tara, having two wives, spending time with one of them in winter before going to be with the other in summer. Because of the time of year that this occurred, the two women embodied the concepts of winter and summer as well. Hine Takurua being the winter maiden, and Hine Romati being the summer maiden. If you were listening carefully, you might note that Hine Takurua is very similar to Takurua, the star of July, and identified by Europeans as Sirius. That is because Takurua is meant to be Hine Takurua herself, her name meaning winter, and the star being an indication that the colder months are upon us. By contrast, Hine Romati lives with us here on Earth, being personified by warm soil that grows the plants in summer. Just like Takurua means winter, Romati means summer. As it turns out, Tamanui Tara also looks to the rising of Matariki to indicate when he has spent enough time with Hine Takurua and their children. He then begins his journey south on the winter solstice, called Te Takana o Te Ra, the turning place of the sun, which can also be used to refer to the summer solstice as well. When Tamanui Tara is with Hine Takarua, he is said to be away from the earth with his wife in the heavens, since the days are short and his warmth doesn't reach the earth as much. And so, Matariki tells him that he needs to return to Earth to see his other wife, Hineiromati, and bring his warmth and longer days to humans. So, on ya, Matariki, for, for that one. It has been suggested that the new year begins when Matariki rises in conjunction with a new moon, but Matamua thinks this is unlikely because the new moon phase is named Fero, again, the god of darkness, disease, and generally bad things. This moon phase, naturally, is not considered to be a particularly nice time, and Matariki is meant to not only indicate when the year started, but also how good or bountiful the coming year would be. It seems a bit weird that Māori would observe the new year and the signs of the year to come during the phase of the moon that was kind of considered an ill omen. 
So it is much more likely that they observed the start of the new year in the period leading up to the new moon, a three or four day period called Napo or Tangaroa, the Nights of Tangaroa. This period was said to be a good and fertile time of the month, so it is much more likely that this was the period where Matariki would be observed. In some cases, Matariki might be visible before the period of Tangaroa, but the new year and the ceremonies that go with it wouldn't begin until everything lined up correctly. Māori astronomy overall is called Tātai Arorangi and was part of a wider kite of knowledge called Kauwairunga, which pertained to not just knowledge of celestial objects, but also around creation, atua, and time itself. The tohonga who held this knowledge were called tohonga kokorangi, or tohonga tātai arorangi. Though most people had a basic level of understanding, these tohonga held on to the deeper and more in-depth knowledge. The more common knowledge was often shown in common phrases, such as, quote, ka to hera, ka fiti hera, end quote, meaning the sun will set and the sun will rise. Essentially meaning that even if things are hard for you, life moves on, or that things will eventually get better. Another is when someone is called pariaro wahine tiweka, they are being compared to, quote, a woman with questionable morals, end quote. This is because Pariaro is Jupiter, or Tiaka says it's Saturn, so it's either one or the other, but the idea is that these celestial bodies move across the sky close to one star and then another, so they're a bit, you know, they're a bit loose, loosey-goosey. The stars are often seen as Atua in their own right, with Tane Mahuta asking his siblings, Tangotango and Wainui, to give him their children so he could use them to cloak their father, Ranginui, the sky god. Along with the Fetu, stars, they also gave Tane the sun and moon. The new moon phase is also said to have been when the moon dies and goes to bathe in Tane Te Wairoa the, quote, life-giving waters of Tāne, end quote. We also see buildings, particularly marae, were also orientated in such a way that the sun would come across the porch in the morning. Alright, let's move on to the stars being used for navigation. Ocean navigation via the stars by and large, stopped after Māori arrived in Aotearoa, since they no longer went on oceanic voyages like they did in the past, as the focus likely shifted to exploring their new home. Remember that Aotearoa, in comparison to the islands that Māori had come from, was vast, it was huge, so there was plenty to do and explore without having to sail to other islands like they had done previously. This loss of knowledge would have occurred gradually over time, as oceanic skills became less favourable and useful in a more terrestrial environment. Of course, Māori still travelled by sea, just close to the coast, so seafaring and navigation wasn't lost entirely. 
That changed in the 20th century, as various people tried to regain that lost information and revive Māori astronomical knowledge and seafaring techniques, which they primarily did through increased use of waka. Namely, Sir Apirana Nata and Sir Terangi Hiroa in the 1920s, along with Princess Tapuia with her waka building project for the 100th anniversary of Waitangi in the 1930s, and then Hekenuku Mai Hector Busby since the 1970s, who was considered to be the quote, epitome of waka revival in this country, end quote, having built a number of single and double hulled waka. These projects had a lot of things surrounding them and a lot of goals that they were trying to achieve. Just in the navigational space, uh, astronomical knowledge isn't the only thing that is required for oceanic navigation. It also needs knowledge about things like ocean currents, cloud formations, weather and wind, waves, and sometimes even bird and fish behaviours. So just on the navigation front, These projects of building waka and using them was trying to get a lot of that knowledge of of just navigation, as well as the fact, of course, trying to revitalize the knowledge of building waka and then how to actually sail them on the ocean as well. So there's a lot of things going on in these projects that isn't just straight up trying to uh, use the stars to navigate and regain and really codify that knowledge so it can be passed on to future generations. So Greg, to get to your picture that you sent me of the the compass, the way Māori navigate with the stars today is by watching for when those stars rise and set in the sky. The star compass you sent me is split into different sections called houses. The compass is obviously a circle, with the waka in the middle, with each house lining the edge of the circle which corresponds to the stars seen on the horizon. As such, if you can see where stars are in the sky in relation to where they are to you and to each other and where they're setting and rising, then you can know which direction you are pointing and then steer the waka where you want to go. You don't need to know all the stars, just the ones associated with the 32 different houses. Given you can't see the stars during the day, the compass was pretty much only used at night, and the sun would be used during the day, since it always rises in the east and sets in the west. Though, depending on the time of year, would depend on the specific house it was in. Particularly long voyages can have the sun drift houses during the journey, up to two houses across two months, so any voyages that take about a month or more need to account for this, such as the journey between Tahiti and New Zealand taking about three and a half weeks. Tahiti being the most likely place that Māori migrated from when they came to Aotearoa. The star compasses that are used here in New Zealand were developed from Hawaiian compasses, which were, in turn, developed from the traditional navigational teachings of Mo'opiolog of Satawal, Caroline Islands, in the Federated States of Micronesia. I apologise that I almost 100% sure that I didn't pronounce his name right. He came from a long line of navigators who passed on their traditional knowledge to their children over the generations. 
And when the Kanaka Māori, the indigenous people of Hawaii, went looking to get back some of their lost knowledge, he agreed to share his skills to ensure that it would live on in others. Which, from the sounds of it, was quite a significant thing, because the tikanga was to only teach those within his family. He broke that for the wider benefit of Pacific cultures. So, good on you, mate. So to boil all of that down into one sentence, to answer your question, Greg, the Māori star compass is a modern invention. At least as far as I can tell, it's not something that was used historically. There are some techniques to use the moon to figure out north and south as well, but it needs to be in the first or last quarter phase, and it also needs to be pretty much directly above you. This is done by drawing a line between the two tips of the crescent, and extending the line to the horizon. Using the sun and moon is considered a good estimate, in case the stars aren't visible due to cloud or other weather conditions. And so, once the stars become visible again, you should use them to confirm any readings you have made. Stars directly above the waka can also be used to estimate latitude. However, this isn't super reliable, since it's hard to tell if the star is directly above you. So, a better method is to find a known star and measure how far it is from the horizon. As the waka moves around the Earth, certain stars will dip beyond the horizon and disappear, or will emerge from the horizon and become visible, which will help in figuring out where you are on the planet. This, of course, mostly is useful if you're travelling a really long distance, say New Zealand to Hawaii. For example, the North Star isn't visible in Aotearoa, but as you head to Hawaii, it will eventually emerge. So, if you can't see it, you know that you're within a certain latitude, and if you can see it, you know you're within another different set of latitudes. So, you can take the angle at which the North Star is above the horizon, and that will help you figure out what your latitude is. If it's closer to the horizon, you're probably further south. If it's further away from the horizon, you're probably further north. That's kind of the basic gist. A similar thing can be done with the Southern Cross when you're heading south. It's also worth mentioning that this technique only works because the Earth is round. It is not flat, it is a planet, it is a sphere, or just about a sphere. This wouldn't work if the Earth was flat. That's not really, that's not really relevant to anything, I'm just kind of putting it out there that this just only works because the Earth is round. So thank you again for the question, Greg. Hopefully that answers uh, everything that you had in there, and probably then some, because you didn't ask about Maramataka, but I gave you that anyway. So so hopefully that um, is what you're after. The next question is from James. You said the land of the fairies is located under New Zealand. If Ireland is geographically on the opposite side of the world, and known as the land of the fairies, do you think we're the land of the fairies in Māori history? Uh, James is Irish, by the way. And yes, I'm aware they would have never crossed paths, I just like the idea of it. So, I've taken this question in a slightly different direction. 
um because i think this is a good question because you're right james you've answered the question for me which is they never would have crossed paths um the irish and uh, maori no chance of that but i thought i might take it as an opportunity to kind of discuss i guess the uh, conspiracy theories surrounding who got here first basically so once again yes you are right that maori and the irish uh, never would have crossed paths at least not until the arrival of the british empire to aotearoa at which point there was lots of irish that came over in varying capacities the sort of main two reasons they came was either as part of the military to fight in the new zealand wars and other territorial conflicts or as immigrants as a result of being pushed out of Ireland due to the Great Hunger, which most of the rest of the world knows as the Potato Famine. So we're actually going to see quite a few Irish in our story as we go forward. To your point though about Irish and Māori having never met, there are some conspiracy theories that various groups of Europeans colonised Aotearoa before Māori such as the Celts, Phoenicians, Egyptians, Vikings, and probably a few others. So just to really lay it out there, just totally put it up front, these are all categorically 100% false. There is no basis to them. If any of those people were in New Zealand for any extended period of time, then we would expect to find various items left by them. Things like buildings or the remnants of buildings, pots, jewellery and other metalwork. But the fact of the matter is, we just don't find these in the archaeological record. And even if they got here but didn't stay long enough for any of those things to be left in the record, we would probably expect there to be some written record, assuming they made it back home. But we don't find that either. There is no archaeological or written record to indicate anyone arrived before Māori. Māori were absolutely here first. These conspiracy theories are mostly used by people to justify the colonisation of Aotearoa by the British, basically as a way to say that it was okay because if white people got here first, then there was nothing wrong with taking the land by force off Māori. There is a similar conspiracy theory that Moriori arrived first, and when Māori arrived later, they killed and ate them. This, again, is false, and mostly used to defend the actions of the British Empire, as a way to show that Māori were colonisers in their own right, and therefore the way that the British Empire were colonising them was justified. What is true is that Moriori are descended from a group of Māori who migrated from Aotearoa to Rekohu, the Chatham Islands, around 1500 CE. Because of how isolated Rekohu is, they developed their own unique culture that is very clearly related to Māori and wider Polynesia, whilst also being distinct from them. 
1835, they were attacked by Māori from Taranaki and nearly wiped out, in part due to the fact that Moriori had a strong pacifist culture, which made it easier for Māori to commit genocide and enslave whoever was left, dropping the population from about 2,000 to 100, which according to Wikipedia, which I normally wouldn't use as a source, but I did find this an interesting tidbit, that makes it one of the most deadly genocides in history in terms of percent of the population killed. Today, you might hear some people say that there aren't any Moriori around, or they all died, which also isn't true. They're still there on Reikohu, at about half their pre-invasion population. There are absolutely people today that identify as Moriori, and in fact their imi, which is their word for iwi, are recognised by the government, and in fact this year, 2023, they got a settlement under the Waitangi Tribunal, and I'm pretty sure as part of that uh, whole package was to stop the teaching of the myth that I've just described, that Moriori arrived first and then Māori killed them all and that sort of stuff. That was all kind of wrapped up in there as well. It goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that this genocide doesn't justify the atrocities done by the British to Māori. What happened to the Moriori is obviously horrific, what happened to Māori is also obviously horrific. Both of those things can be true at the same time. But yeah, I know that wasn't uh, what I guess you kind of asked, James, in your question, um, but I, again, I thought it was a good opportunity just to talk about that a little bit, since we haven't, I've mentioned it a couple of times in the podcast, but thought that expanding on it a bit more you know might be of interest also just i guess addressing uh the moriori kind of situation there as well in terms of the fact i have not really talked about them all that much in the podcast um so just kind of addressing that i am aware of that and it is on purpose because i think it's going to be better to talk about moriori kind of all in one go at some point whenever that may be i don't know when i'm going to do that just yet so it might be a while out but i thought yeah i, I thought it might be easier to talk about moriori all in one go um to cover this whole period of of yeah what happened to them and all that sort of stuff so probably closer around the time when we get to sort of 1835 is probably when i'm going to talk about that just because jumping between what's going on on the mainland versus what's going on in the Chatham Islands, to jump between those every now and again, I think is going to be a bit difficult and probably a bit hard to follow. So yeah, so I'm going to contain that all in one piece, I think is what I'm going to do. So yeah, in case anyone was wondering why I haven't talked about Moriori that much as of yet, that's why I'm aware of it. It's on purpose. Don't worry. But what I've just given you here is sort of a Sparknotes version of what happened. So if, you know, if you're wondering what that all is going on there, then that's a little, it's a little taster, that's a little, you know, general overview. If you want to get in touch, my email and social media are on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A. R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there like transcripts and sources. If you would like to support Hans, you can do so through donating via Patreon or giving us a review. 
as always, haere tu watu, oki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>